Hey guys, welcome back to The Weekly. I'm Danny Giacopelli, Courier's Editorial Director. Of all the sectors that have been hit hardest by the pandemic, the events industry is pretty high up there. Not that it's a competition, but while some restaurants can still operate takeaway service or do outdoor dining, events companies are almost completely shut down. And because of that, about 61% of event-focused business owners here in the UK say they're likely to go bankrupt by early next year without more government support. And that would be a loss of about 413,000 jobs. Those business owners also report that they've lost about £83,000 in revenue since March. Well, the company that carried out that survey is Feastit, which connects event planners with thousands of suppliers and street food vendors. Today, we're with Feastit's co-founder, Digby Volrath, who says that while event companies are in a huge amount of trouble and support is needed to make sure jobs are protected, he's still bullish on the long-term future of events. And it's not just wishful thinking. Feastit raised nearly two million pounds across a few rounds before and during the pandemic, when the revenue was down 98%. So sit tight and hear Digby talk about how their investors bought into the future of events, and he'll explain some ways to make money in events when everything goes back to normal. I think it's been a very interesting six months. At the start of a year, you do your planning for the year, and at no point were we predicting in January that our entire industry would be banned globally, and there would be no option to kind of get around that. So it's it's been really interesting. I think the way we looked at it was kind of the problem's been split across a few different ways. So initially was back in February, we looked at it from perspective of what is this going to look like there was kind of news that there was a flu coming and that it was going to have some effect on events and you know initially you saw the kind of early early wave it with stuff like the olympics and in tokyo and things like that getting banned and we thought okay is this going to be three months six months nine months or you know is this going to be an 18 month problem we were quite lucky that we adapted pretty early and we've been running like a triple model method the whole time so we've had three financial models that we've kind of been running at the same time and always making sure we have like a system that we can back up to and kind of alternate to so for us, it was just how long is this going to last and then how are we going to judge it? And then kind of what are our like business circuit breakers? Like when do we get to the next stage and understand where we go from there? So it's been interesting. We were really fortunate and we had closed around a funding just before the lockdown. So back in February, we actually closed around and that kind of meant that we didn't have to instantly totally cut and wildly change our business model overnight that we were able to be slightly more considerate and kind of think about it in the long term. We've kind of kept the same belief throughout, which is that we're bullish on the events industry. We believe that, you know, fundamentally humans care about connecting and that this space will in the long term recover and that fundamentally COVID's not going to be this great change maker in events over a 10-year horizon. I think we'll see certain things change. So we'll see potentially people traveling globally to go to things like conferences. We'll see kind of certain aspects of events changing and maybe who attends them and what's online versus what's offline alternating but fundamentally events like festivals weddings stuff like that people are going to in the long term want to return to so for us it's meant that our long-term horizons haven't necessarily changed and on a five-year kind of outline that's what we're still aiming for but fundamentally in the short term it's obviously had a huge effect on how we think about you know 2020 and then even 2021 yeah and i want to dig into a few different parts of that and break it apart so i mean the first thing is the macro view of of the events industry. So you guys just carried out some really interesting research, a survey on events companies here in the UK. And it was dismal reading. It was really depressing. One of the headline stats of that research was that 61% of the UK events businesses that you talk to, that amounts to many, many thousands of, of companies, expect to go bankrupt within the next half year. 61%. 
Yeah, exactly. So at the moment, 61% of companies are saying that they will, by March next year, which is kind of on the current government timetable when events will be legal again in kind of a traditional form, so yeah, 61% of them are saying they're not going to make it through to them without further government support. What that means is it's about 400,000 jobs we're talking about that are likely to be lost over that period. What we found really interesting is that people are very confused about the events industry. People understand what hospitality is, and they understand what that is as an industry. So pubs, restaurants, et cetera, people understand how to comprehend that. And events is one of these industries that kind of falls through the gaps, largely because it's a huge number of small businesses. It's about 25,000 small businesses predominantly make up this industry. So whether that be from you know, single people who are photographers who do you know, wedding photography through to small street food businesses, lighting rigs, whatever it may be, there's a huge number of small independent businesses power this. And often it kind of doesn't get lumped together. It gets treated as these separate things. So like everyone's aware of what the wedding industry, everyone's aware of what the festival industry is, everyone's aware of what the conference industry is. But events as a holistic industry has really fallen through the gaps. And the way we've looked at it is it's larger than domestic tourism as a space. It's something like five times the size of the UK film industry. It's this huge monolith that because it's always kind of broken down to its constituent parts, it's kind of not treated as the value to the economy that it actually has collectively. And so for us, something that we're really, really interested in is how is this huge space? So Boris Johnson mentioned it on Monday, and I think it was the first time during this entire crisis where it's really been highlighted as an industry. And he kind of, I think there was some line about it not being hugely affected. This 90 billion pound industry is the bigger that he used as well, would be fine. And actually what we found is that we're pretty much the only space at the moment that's just completely bad. Most other sectors are, have some normality in place. Even hospitality. I mean, hospitality is on its knees as well, but at least they have, you know, takeaway and they have you know, various things, you know, like make it home boxes where you cook it up and they sell it. And, you know, it's still not nearly enough to sustain the industry, but physical events, just it's done. Yeah, exactly. So I think we all want hospitality to return as well. But like you said, right at the moment, right now, you can go to the pub in a group of six and that's some form of trade can happen, right? There's, Curfews that are massively damaged in the space. There's a huge amount of restrictions that are obviously having huge damage to that as an industry as well. But there's something that you can do in the same way that restaurants are able to pivot to being on delivery or Uber Eats or you know going to delivery, meal kits, etc. But events holistically doesn't have that, right? If you're someone who works in lighting rigs or sound design, there's not really something that you can immediately pivot to that doesn't work without an audience and doesn't work without a space to be able to do that in. So. For us, what's been really, really key over the last few months is how does this sector, how do we get the sector back working? And I think no one in our space is saying, let's throw a huge festival tomorrow and let everyone not socially distance. I think the message has been, there's kind of two. It's one is, you know, how do we get events back and how do we get them back safely? And then the second is, how do we start building confidence in the public about when they can come back? At the moment, we're in this particular crunch period where, so we've had, you know, 100% event cancellation pretty much over the last six months, right? And the vast, vast majority of those have been weddings or private events. Then what we're seeing is very few people went for having 15-person weddings or Zoom weddings or kind of any of those alternatives. The vast majority just hit pause on it and I said, great, I want to do that in 2021 or 2022. And what we're seeing is that at the moment, because the government's basically said that jobs in this space are not viable, and their term, what they're deeming viable to be is a business that can trade now, rather than actually there's a business that are incredibly viable. They're just not viable because of the current sanctions on them. So in 12 months from now, let's, you know, we're all hoping there'll be a vaccine and let's say life's just back to normal 12 months from today. If we allow, you know, these 61% of these businesses to go under. So you're talking about 15,000 companies fail and you know 400,000 jobs get lost. Those jobs will be immediately viable as soon as the events industry is able to return. So actually what we're trying to say is how do we 
create some form of confidence. And for us, what's really important about that is that other industries have been more successful at this than we have as a space. So if you look at the film industry for them, what they did was underwrite the insurance and add confidence for those studios to get back, get filming and kind of help protect those jobs. I think for the events industry, a lot of this is that it's not saying let's get back together today. It's saying, how do we build confidence in the public that they can be sure that their August wedding in 2021 is going to be able to take place? And how do we get the deposits starting to flow back into this space and being able to help, you know, that flow of cash, get these businesses through to that period when they're going to need to be able to produce it. I think, you know, as the analogy I saw that basically, you, you know, you can't turn this space off and on like a light bulb. If, you know, by just banning it, it's not something like, you know, in six months from now, it's great. You know, with the vaccine, we're all, we're all able to go out and party again. But if those jobs are lost, that's going to take years and years to recover to even get to where we started if we're not really, really careful with this space. And for us, this is something that's a huge part of our national identity, right? We are, we're a nation that's famous for parties and events. You know, we have the most famous festival in the world is here. You know, globally, things like the Royal Wedding is something that billions of people tune in to watch. You know, we're known for our hospitality and we're known for our events. And it's something that's really core to who we are as a nation. And I think that it's kind of been forgotten in all this time. But actually, there's something that needs protecting. And if we don't do something to save it now, there'll be significantly reduced ability to have it come back. When you're looking at the long-term future of events, though, you are assuming, though, that a vaccine will be the magic fix and everything will go back to normal. I mean, what happens when COVID-22, COVID-23 hits and then it's like everything goes back to the way it was back in March and everybody panics again and looks to the government? I mean, are there any long-term fixes that businesses can do now to future-proof themselves against a future, you know, catastrophic incident? Yeah, I think it's a really good question. I think all of us are hopeful that for everyone's sake, I hope there's this is the last COVID we have to deal with. I mean, but it won't be. That's the thing. It won't be, right? I mean, they, it's probably going to happen again in a few years, just another coronavirus or another sort of pandemic. And it just, you can't then say, oh, who would have ever thought of that? Yeah, no, totally. I, I think it's a, it's a really good point. And I think for us, it's around, there are really positive steps being made. When people are looking at how the festival season of 2021 looks like, there's some really interesting ideas coming out there around, look, if we're able to get to the point of having tests that uh, take four minutes or half an hour, an hour to do, how do we just make that part of the entry process, right? If we know who's entering the space and we know that they are not contagious, then brilliant. How do we start using that as just part of the process of getting into a festival? You know, at the moment, if you're traveling to somewhere like Italy, you've got to arrive with having a negative COVID test within 72 hours before you can enter the country. You know, there, there are countries that have done a much better job of getting their tourism industry back than we have because of doing that. So it's the same thing for like international travel, it's saying the same prevents. How do we start adding those as like, added levels of security. I think on individual smaller businesses, how do they do it? For me, I think the big thing that's really, really been difficult for this industry is that COVID was something that just didn't apply to any insurance, right? No one's insurance covered pandemics. You know, these, these are acts of God's force majeure. And, you know, what that's meant is that this huge loss of revenue. I think that's something we're going to have to see in the future change is understanding maybe we're going to have to pay for more premium insurance models. Maybe we're going to have to have things that protect us how do our deposit systems work? There's going to have to be like levels of security that ensure that this space is more protected, where there's just a thing that's completely wipes out where you, know, you have 25,000 businesses. I think our study showed that a, the average events company that we've worked with during this time has lost somewhere around 80,000 pounds in sales. How do we make sure that they could have claimed that back via having insurances or stop gaps that could have protected them? So in the future, I think that's going to have to be where we make this industry more secure against kind of acts of God and third party events that kind of affect us in that way. So you think the answer then is kind of just being better at responding to these things rather than 
diversifying the kind of the business model so that you don't have to rely on physical events. I mean, obviously, I know if you're an events company, events is your bread and butter. You can't start selling widgets and kind of doing all sorts of different things. But are there any other paths you can take to make money when you find yourself in a a situation when being in person is not allowed? A lot of food suppliers pivoted to whether it be delivery or meal kits. There's There's a lot of options. We saw musicians trying everything from recording music messages and trying to do something that lets them just earn some revenue music teaching, things like that, which they can pivot to. But fundamentally, as an industry, you know, there's a, a 90 billion pound industry that, sure, we can get 5% of it happening online and we can do hybrid events. And we all remember those really exciting days of mid-March where we did Zoom pub quizzes every five minutes. That's a world that I don't think anyone wants to return to immediately right now. And whilst there are hybrid event ideas going ahead, and I'm sure we're all going to do weird Christmas parties over Zoom, and that's what this year is going to look like, I don't think that's something the public are crying out to repeat for the next 10 years of their life. Yeah, I think I think Zoom pub quizzes lasted for about four weeks at the Courier HQ. Yeah, exactly. Then, yeah, we did all sorts of great things. The weather got good and we realized we'd much rather be outside than doing that. A certain type of event is definitely going to move online. I think that not just the event space, I think we've all learned that international business travel is not going to be as essential as it was. I think we've worked out that actually you don't need to go to New York. You can have a bunch of Zoom meetings and save a lot of money. And that we'll probably see that conferences and certain types of events become hybrid, where there's, there might be a focal city that's, you know, rather than having 60,000 people turn up at South by, can you do it with 5,000 people who really need to be there? And actually a huge amount of it can be done digitally. It seems like that is an actual long-term change, whereas we'll all still go to weddings. Nobody's going to stop going to weddings. People will all go to their favorite you know, music festival if it's still running and they're obsessed with it. But it's that kind of, oh, do I really need to go to that trade show in Las Vegas when I can kind of just skip it? Yeah, exactly. I, I think that's going to change, definitely. I would say that what's interesting is that prior to COVID, the largest wallet in events are now millennials. So they are whether that be the people organizing the company's Christmas party or weddings or you know, birthdays, whatever, the largest spend has now come from millennials. And millennials as a demographic value experience over possessions. So the stats, something like 78% of millennials would rather spend money on an, an experience than on something, on buying an item they find desirable. That's only going to increase, right? Millennials are only become, going to become a larger part of the spending power over the next five, 10 years. And fundamentally, what we really want to do is be around other people and connect, right? We all rush back to the pub uh, as soon as they're open. That's the things we all talk about is these, these human moments that we're missing out on. And I don't see that changing. And I think that's really been demonstrated by the fact that people didn't suddenly have hybrid weddings. You know, there was a few outliers, but, you know, I'm 29 and I'm at the age where every single person I know is getting married. And I don't think I went to a single Zoom wedding this summer. So I think we're definitely going to see physical events are not going anywhere. It might change immediately the age demographics it goes to them, maybe the sizes of them slightly change, but fundamentally those are coming back. And I think that's something that we're definitely going to see over the next few years. As soon as we can, people are going to be back enjoying each other's company. But I do think the kind of the business corporate side of it might alter and what, what they look like might change over the next couple of years. You guys mentioned that you managed to survive partly because you raised a good amount of cash, I guess, right before this all kicked off or actually right after it all kicked off, I guess. And you mentioned there the scenario planning that you were um, doing. Could you just dig a bit deeper into that and explain what exactly you did and how you convinced investors to give money to an events company in the middle of a pandemic when you lost probably all of your revenue? I'm sure they're asking themselves that as well. We were really lucky in that we'd actually just closed a round of funding prior to it. It was it was actually wasn't a particularly big round. It was and it was meant to be a, a kind of a bridge to a larger 
kind of institutional round that we're going to be hopefully closing around now. How much was it? So we, we closed 650 just prior to COVID. And then we've now gone on to close 1.2 million during COVID. So the 650 prior to what that let us do was just instantly gave us breathing space where we didn't immediately need to pivot and lay off lots of people do anything that gave us time to breathe. And obviously we were took advantage of things like the furlough scheme and were able to just, it gave us like that kind of space. Why people then came back and invested in us and on similar terms in the middle of COVID. We didn't do a big down round, anything like that. And we had reinvestment from a lot of existing investors as well as bringing on board actually new investors. That round closed a couple of weeks ago, right in the middle of this. The reason why is that it's this sense that we're bullish about the future events. The example uses, it's not like office space, which this is, COVID will forever change how we interact with going into work and what that looks like. You know, I can't look into the future and say exactly I don't think everyone working from home 100% of the time is going to be the future, but I don't think everyone being nine to five back in the office is the future either. When it comes to events, there's this human needs to be social and spend time with each other and interact with each other won't go away as a result of COVID. And if anything, I think it's one of these events that we're going to be more desperate off the back of this. We're going to be really desperate when we are actually allowed to go out and hug our loved ones again and spend time with each other. I think that's something we're all really yearning to do. So for us, that's very much the way you pitch it. We're building digital platform in what is still an incredibly analog space. So the comparison we use of events as a market is it's it's effectively where travel was 20 years ago. It's a space that there's thousands of independent small businesses power this market in the same way that travel would do. However, at the moment, there's no digital aggregator that basically makes that process easier for both the consumer and the supplier. So what we offer as a platform is for the consumer, we're a marketplace which we curate the best suppliers in the country. We do the hard work of the discovery and then we streamline that entire process of finding a supplier and then booking them. And then what we do for our suppliers is they are all artisans and experts in their individual field, right? So someone who's a street food trader who makes the best hamburgers in London is not necessarily going to be the best digital marketer of how to be an events business in London. So what we want to do is build a platform that just helps them grow their businesses. And for us, by being something that's digitalized in this analog space, there's a huge area of growth for us in the long term. And we think that there will be a continued transition of people transacting online. People are going to be organizing their events online more. What we were looking at was saying, 10 years in the future, is this how people are going to operate? And our events going to be back? We're not building something on a 12-month horizon. We're building it on that 10-year horizon. We want to build the largest events company in the world. And that's not going to happen over the next six months anyway. I mean, I wish it would, but it's not. So how do we build it over the long term? And so for us, that, that was really the conversation we had with our investors saying, this is what we're building. Our plans haven't changed. Immediately what we can do over the short term has massively, but our long-term vision remains the same. How we kind of created confidence with them was we were just super, super honest that when we were running those three different models, we said at all points we were communicating, there is a zero revenue chance there. And we never, ever shied away. We never tried to hide behind brilliant stats about user engagement or anything like that. We said, this is, you know, we went from doing, you know, we had really ambitious numbers for this year and we were down 98% down in sales from Target in April. So were you essentially, I mean, following the worst case scenario then, Path, or or just just above? I mean, your worst case scenario, I imagine, was zero revenue coming in. Yeah, so we had, yeah, I think we had one or 2% above that. I think in the eyes of an investor, it was the worst case. On that side, we were following the worst case and we're incredibly fortunate. We've got an incredible group of investors who've been with us, you know, the majority of our board of people who invested us four years ago and have followed us through this. And we've obviously built up a lot of goodwill as founders with them over that time where we've, whether it be they trust us as being honest or they buy the vision from us or we're great liars and they just, they haven't worked out yet. Whatever the version of events is, we've had that goodwill from them. And for us, it was saying like, this is the situation. 
Right now, we are a tech business. We can continue to build. Fundamentally, we have, we'll have less data points to understand if what we're building is correct. We'll have less immediate validation of what we're building. But fundamentally, we can still build a better product for what the world's going to look like in 12 months. When we get out the other side of this, and actually, in, there's a, in a very perverse way, there's a slight blessing in disguise, which means we can be totally focused on product. That's the only thing we can worry about right now. Don't worry about any customers because there are no customers. Yeah, well, there's a couple, but yeah, exactly. So that, that was the logic was we can go out there and we can really, yeah. really invest in what we're building for the future and make sure that what our suppliers are going to need and what our customers are going to want off the back of this is going to change. What are the things that they're going to be worried about? And from both parties, how are they going to need their fees paid? How are they going to want to spend money? How are they going to think about their events? What is the level of reassurance they're going to need? All of these different problems that are definitely being kicked up from this. How do we go and solve those problems now? So that when we talk about a recovery next year, we are incredibly well positioned to be a 10x platform than we would have been otherwise. So that laser focus and, you know, there are some investors who probably didn't buy into this, but we have a really strong group of investors who did, who buy into this bullish vision on a five-year horizon, right? If, if you buy in that events will return and you buy that we are as a business are building a solution for what events will look like five years from now anyway, then this is kind of a small hiccup in that road. If what you're saying is even remotely true and not just wishful thinking, I mean, if events do come back in a big way, and if so many of these events businesses right now fail, I mean, if half of all events businesses fail, which it seems like that's not quite out of the you know realm of possibility, then when events do come back, there's going to be a huge amount of opportunities to fill and gaps to fill and to plug, right? I mean, there's going to be just a dearth of events professionals and companies to kind of do all this stuff, right? So what opportunities do you foresee that, you know, a smart founder right now could fill if they're placing their money on events? I think that's probably a fairly valid reading of things. I think that for us also, one of our big focuses is how do we protect this industry, right? We're a marketplace. So our job is we're meant to be the sales arm for our suppliers. So we need those suppliers to exist as well. So for us, we're in talks with government and trying to find ways that we can try and protect as many of those businesses as possible. The UK has got this phenomenal bank of talent and will wipe out a generation of talent if we let them fail. So for us, it's really important. Right. Priority number one is to not let them fail. But I mean, imagine they do fail. Like what will need to be plugged then? What kind of talent will we lose in the process? There's going to be two interesting things happen. So one is there's going to be when there's, if there's an explosion in the number of events. So at the moment, we've currently got 70% of the events we had lined up for this year have moved into next year or the year after. So even if we just assume the same number of people, if even with half the number of weddings that would have taken place next year, go ahead, we're still looking at a year of 120% number of normal weddings, right? If you right now are trying to look to book a wedding venue for the latter half of next year, you're going to really, really struggle to find something in June, July and any of the peak days in any of the peak seasons. So there will be this huge recovery. So I think there are definitely going to be massive opportunities around recruitment into these small businesses. There's suddenly going to be caterers that are have got twice as many events they might normally have, but they've had to furlough or lay off a huge amount of their staff. So I think that that's going to be a really interesting problem this space is going to have to deal with when a recovery comes. And we can you know, optimistically think next year, or worst case scenario, we can think 2022, but there will be a return, right? There will be a peak season will return. And there's going to be a huge amount of kind of seasonal work or freelancers or people who, businesses that haven't been able to survive this, that have had to let their staff go, that are going to be available to return to work. And we're going to have to find a way of getting them back into work and finding really, really good staff and getting all the best people back into you know, filling these roles. So that's going to be a really interesting space so that's going to develop over the next few months. I think that insurance as well. Yeah, you would think insurance tech and insurance startups are just kind of like scheming right now. How can we make you know really easy solutions for all of these small businesses that now are probably left out? 
Yeah, exactly. Especially along when it comes to freelancers and individual, you know, a huge amount of this industry are freelancers or, you know, people on short-term contracts or seasonal labor. And what is the employment solutions there? What is the insurance solutions? How as an industry can we protect those people? And then how can we ensure that if this happens again, it doesn't have to, but also that these businesses who've got pretty razor thin margins anyway, are able to kind of protect those whilst ensuring that if the worst happens, they're able to survive. I know nothing about insurance, but do you think pandemics will move from something like Act of God to something that's actually able to be covered? I think if you've got loss of earnings insurance and you lost your earnings, I think potentially the insurance company should pay out. Because nobody had pandemic cover in their, in their policies at all, right? I mean, that was the one thing that people are like, oh shit, let me read the fine print. There's going to have to be a space where there's grace protection around these things, right? Where hopefully a once in generation event took place and the system failed the businesses in it. There's going to have to be like systemic change to how we ensure that doesn't happen again. The events industry as an industry is insured up to the hilt, right? More than almost any other industry. You're talking about independent photographers and caterers have got 10 million pounds worth of liability insurance for every event they do. This is an industry that is incredibly highly insured and yet somehow it fell through the gaps in every single space when it came to this. Any other opportunities or gaps to fill that you see? That you maybe won't with Feast It fill, but that other people could fill? Yeah, I think there's, it's going to be an interesting space around getting people back to work. That For me, that that is like the primary area I'm kind of thinking about. I think that this millennials becoming the primary basket is going to be interesting seeing how that adapts. I think that interesting enough, there's been these, the gatekeepers of money have been a different generation from who the money spent on. So often the person organizing the event might not be the same demographic as the person attending the event. That's going to be a really interesting space that adapts. And, you know, hybrid events are something that people are trying and are playing with. And I'm, I'm sure those will get better. Video conferencing has got a lot better over the last six months. So I think that things like around there will get better. But for me, getting the public confident with going out and interacting with each other, there's you know, this hand sanitizer. How do we feel comfortable being in the same space as each other? And how, what does track and trace look like? There's a huge amount of space about getting like the confidence of people back. And I think that's going to be a really interesting thing over the next few years. And that was Digby Volrath from Feast It. And that's it this week. Make sure to tune into our new six-part podcast series. We've just launched it in partnership with Instagram. It's called Looking Up. Every week we'll meet founders across six cities here in the UK to find out how they've been adapting during COVID. Just search for Looking Up on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Hit me up with any questions or comments. As always, I'm at daniel at couriermedia.co. The Courier Weekly is back again next Friday. We'll see you then.